Thanks for the memories. You've got a friend in us. This is episode 44, Larry Crown, or Lance Corona, from 2011. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And Mike, with us tonight to celebrate the return of Miss Julia Roberts to Hanks of the Memories, back from her heyday as a Texas bigwig billionaire in Charlie Wilson's War. Totally different roles, although are they totally different roles? We'll find out. Joining us is the host of the Not Her Again podcast, whose second season is all about Miss Julia Roberts. We have Michael Domenico. Hello, Michael. Hello, thanks for having me. Thank you for being back. Thank you for lending your uh, expertise to Julia Roberts. You've been on the other half of the Tom Tom Club a couple times. You were on Far and Away. You were on that one where Tom Cruise plays Marco Rubio, Lions for Lambs. Yeah, all winners. But you have not been on this podcast yet. So before we get into Larry Crown, or as Mike said, Lance Corona, what is your history with Tom Hanks? Do you have a history with Tom Hanks? And do you have a favorite Tom Hanks movie? Favorite Tom Hanks movie would be Catch Me If You Can. Also favorite Leo movie, the movie Leo should have won the Oscar for, etc., etc. In terms of my history with Tom Hanks, it's like, isn't everyone's history with Tom Hanks basically the same? You know, they saw Big when they were younger, then they saw Saving Private Ryan when they were older. They've watched, like a lot of his movies, although I have not seen Philadelphia, which he won, you know, his first Oscar for. But I feel like I've seen a lot of the other big Tom Hanks movies, although now you're going to list all these Tom Hanks movies I probably haven't seen. But I feel like, you know, a pretty standard relationship with Tom Hanks is like most moviegoers. Big fan, like to see him pop up every now and again. I would say, again, favorite though, catch me if you can. Can't go wrong. Now, was this one, was Larry Crown one that you covered for Not Her Again or no? Because I know that your sort of thesis statement has changed a little bit and the way you cover things have changed a little bit going from season to season from what I understand. But did you cover this one on your show or no? Yeah, I think this episode, we did a Larry Crown episode that I think was also paired with Charlie Wilson's War because I think we paired the two Tom Hanks movies as like, you know, this was her, these were her dalliances with Tom Hanks. Cool. Well, they almost could not be more different movies, but Mike... If people out there have not seen Larry Crown, which, by the way, is on Hulu right now. If you have Hulu, you can watch it for free. So, Mike, if people have not seen Larry Crown, please hit us with that sweet, sweet plot summary. Okay, it's basically like, have you seen that Steve Buscemi meme where he's in high school <laughs> and he asks the kids what's going on? That's kind of this movie. How do you do, fellow kids? Larry Crown is, uh, I'd say he's a little older than middle-aged man, still working at U-Mart, which is like a uh, Walmart, I guess you could say. He works at U-Mart. He has not been promoted because he has not gone to college. He was in the Navy straight out of high school, and so he is basically a victim of downsizing. They can't move him around anywhere in the company. There's nowhere for him to go, so uh, out he is with no job and very little funds because of a divorce and a house he can't really afford. He doesn't know really what to do. He ends up going to community college to get his degree and learn a bit about business. Uh, While there, he takes a speech class, and the speech teach is none other than Julia Roberts herself. Um, She's sort of this disillusioned teacher trying to like find maybe a reason to be teaching again. She is married to Brian Cranston, who's sort of this washed up writer turned porn addict. Larry Crown meets a bunch of young friends, including Talia, who is this very free spirit. She gives him a whole new wardrobe, a makeover, goes to his house, rearranges his stuff with feng shui. She is in a moped gang that he joins, headed by Wilbur Valarama. Larry Crown takes a business class taught by George Takai, which is really great. Julia Roberts and Brian Cranston are having marriage difficulties, and one night Larry gives his teacher a Larry lift home when she is intoxicated after a fight with Brian Cranston. They make out on the front porch, but she thinks the next day that 
that maybe it was a mistake. But little by little, Larry wins her over without really trying too hard. And uh, she falls for Larry. Larry aces his final. Everything's kind of coming up roses. He sells all of uh, his useless junk and some of his uh, items that are worth stuff at his neighbor's perpetual garage sale. Uh, run by Cedric the Entertainer. Larry moves out, gets a new place, works as a cook at an old friend's diner. When the next semester rolls around, Larry's nowhere to be seen at uh, Julia Roberts' class, but he leaves a note for her saying, if you would like some French toast, come to this address. And the movie ends when she knocks on his door and they meet again, presumably to go live happily ever after the end. Uh, There's a lot more going on in there, but, you know, that's the gist of it. There's a lot more going on and also not much, if anything, going on in this movie. This is a fascinating movie that I want to quote our guest tonight, Michael DeManico. If if I may, Michael, I would like to quote you and how you describe this movie when uh, I first checked in with you. You called it an explosion of benign muted joy, which, yeah, it's like, it's pleasant in the weirdest of ways. Yeah, Tom Hanks' worldview based on this movie is just like, you know, things are going pretty okay. Like, there are some bad apples, but, you know, don't worry too much about them. You know, things will mostly be pleasant if you're a pleasant person. And that is, like, basically the worldview that this movie takes. Like, there's not a lot of conflict, despite, like, these horrible things going on where, like, he has to strategically foreclose on his home. He's getting laid off. But, like, he's kind of, he just kind of shrugs it off. He knows he'll be okay. And it's just, it's this very kind of nice movie that is just kind of, like, aggressively, like, yeah, don't worry. Like, if there's too much conflict, we will immediately diffuse it. And, like, don't worry about that. Like, it'll get better. Well, I don't think we've mentioned yet that this is now the second time that Tom Hanks has gone behind the camera. That not only is Tom Hanks the lead of this movie, he is the director, he is the co-writer with Nia Vardalos of My Big Fat Greek Wedding fame, and he's also the producer of this movie. This is a Playtone Pictures release. So he is wearing many hats. I'm sure he did a lot of the soundtrack picking because he loves music. It starts off with music. It has music all the way through. But yeah, it does feel like Don't Worry, Be Happy is kind of the vibe that is going throughout this entire thing. I can't remember what other movie I said this about, what I'm about to say. And it's weird because this movie is cast pretty diversely. Like, there's a great range of actors in here, you know, from uh, George Takei to Wilmer Voldorama. But, like, it is still one of maybe the whitest movies I've ever seen in my life. It is so saccharine, and it is just like this... You know, if you have a headache, this will probably get rid of it for you or some kind of thing. But it's just, it's it's this weird fantasy land that just, like, doesn't exist. But it's so entertaining, though, to say the least. I'm glad you brought up George Takai in how you were describing the movie. Because if you'll remember, George Takai was also in The Great Buck Howard, which I was describing on that episode about how people on Letterboxd were being overly mean. They're like, this is certainly a movie that I saw. But I feel like Larry Crown is certainly a movie I saw. Like, it's not bad. I don't know that it's good. It's pleasant. It's not very long, which is very nice. It's a way to spend 99 minutes in like a pleasant in a pleasant situation, a pleasant environment. Was this the first time everyone had seen this movie? Well, Michael saw it for the podcast. I'd never seen it before. Had you seen it? So it's kind of funny the way I, I saw this movie. Um, I think it was like 2012. I had just come back from Vegas and this was on when I came home and it was like the ultimate come down movie. Like I could watch this and just sink back into my couch and like reacclimate myself to non-party times. <laughs> wow. Okay. That's, that's quite a story. I did not expect this to be your like, you know, anti-Vegas, not antidepressant from Vegas, but you're like, just settle back in. But I guess that makes sense. It works. It 
works. Michael, if you had to pick a favorite part or a favorite moment of this movie, what would it be? I think my favorite part, I mean, it happens twice, so I guess like favorite parts. Whenever Julie Roberts is about to start teaching a class, she just like counts all the students because if there aren't 10 students, like the, the state won't like, the state charter doesn't allow them to be there. So every time she's like gonna start a new class, she just counts. The first time she definitely counts nine and she tries to cancel the speech class. And then the second time, I think she also tries to cancel it because there are only eight people in the Shakespeare one. And that I think that those are my favorite moments when she just like walks up and starts counting and is like, oh, thank God we won't have to do this. Well, she also cancels the class with four people too. Like there's the, the other one that I so she must have tenure because I have friends who are like adjunct professors who like live and die by the paychecks they get, right? And they wouldn't want to cancel by... She must get paid like a salary. It seems like that Shakespeare's class was the one she was really there for too. And to not be able to teach that one was like the crushing blow of the semester. <laughs> it's like, oh crap, I can't even do what I wanted what I'm here for. But I mean, I feel like I've been in classes with less than 10 people. I wonder if that's just a mandate from this particular college. Has that ever happened to either of you? Has, ever, has a class ever been canceled due to the sort of, I guess, lack of interest to either of you? I do remember in college, I remember having classes that I was interested in get canceled, not like, not on the first day of class. Like, the, not when you actually show up. <laughs> right. But like they, I've had classes, I think I had classes get canceled because like there wasn't enough interest to generate the class, right? Like I, that's happened. At some point you have enough kids registered that like you go through the class. So unless they drop out between the time that that happens, that cutoff is, and the first day of school, I, why would this happen? I don't know. But yes, it, it happens, but I don't think it happens like this. I had a class once where it was just me and one other student and it was just the two of us and they let <laughs> that go on. <laughs> and one day she was absent so it was literally just me just a one-on-one. I uh, I think I told Mike this story maybe, but when I was in Amsterdam for work and I took a tour on my free time of the Heineken Brewery, I took a private tour and the tour guide came up to me. She's like, you're my tour. And I was like, wait, what? And it was just me and her. And it was the greatest because she was this adorable Dutch girl. And I fell in love with this girl over the course of three hours. And then I never saw her again. But there's something great. It can be great one-on-one, but like in a like a teacher situation, maybe not exactly. Like, was it, was it good? The one-on-one teacher student? It was interesting. Like, I preferred having one other person there usually, but, you know, it was fine. Like, we made it work. <laughs> Mike, what about you? Do you have a favorite part? I feel like favorite parts of a movie like this and least favorite parts are difficult, but do you have a favorite part of this movie? My favorite moments are definitely with the class, like the, the okay. class characters, the different people in the class. With Oscar winner Rami Malek? Yeah, that was wild. I'd forgotten he was in here. My ultimate favorite part is when Larry Crown is driving to school and Julia Roberts is also driving to school and they sort of ride up against the each other and he knocks on the window and and she's trying to drown out the map genie and and he like kind of leans into her car and starts like messing with the map genie and and fixes it for her but he's like pressing a million buttons and i think that's one of the moments that she starts to uh really sort of take a shine to larry where it's like look it's like a man who can actually do something instead of just like click through porn all day like this is amazing i can't believe they're still out there somewhere and he knows about other sort of like gps systems too like who is this larry crown I love that part. By the way, I don't know if you recognize, because there's no reason that you would recognize, because I don't know what, I mean, I know she's been in things, but not things that I've seen, which I know is blasphemous. But the voice of the map genie is Nia Vardalos. I also do want to point out the other, cameo is a little bit underselling it, but the other major important small role is Rita Wilson as the prickly bank teller or loan agent or whatever, the employee at the bank that Hanks has to fight with. I thought it was funny to have his wife play such a, a weird, important small role. Her name in this movie is Wilma Q. 
Gamelgard. Oh, so there's trivia about that, which that name, that last name, is the same name that Liv Tyler says at the end of That Thing You Do, the other movie that Hanks directed, the last time a boy kissed her good, or whatever the whatever the quote is exactly. The same last name as the boy who last decently kissed Faye is also Gamelgard. So I don't know who that name belongs to in real life, but Hanks loves that name. And maybe it was an astronaut or something, but I, I I knew there was a that thing you do connection somewhere. I thought maybe she was playing the cocktail waitress's like great granddaughter or something, or, or maybe, maybe just daughter. I don't know. <laughs> I thought it was some kind of like lineage connecting these movies. Speaking of lineage, there's another important cameo: the pizza boy at the end. Did either of you recognize or did either of you read who that was, or did you know who that was? Is it Chet Hanks? It's Chet Hanks, baby, who calls Julia Roberts a babe and then hits on her and then you know gets chased away. Yeah, that is Chet Hanks. Remarkable. I almost thought that the taxi cab driver who kicks Brian Cranston out. It's just a voice. I was like, I wonder. If that's Colin Hanks. I wonder if he's just doing like menial voiceover work for his dad's movie real quick. We knew in that thing you do that uh, his daughter and Rita and I think Colin were all in it in very small. I mean, Rita has a bigger part, but the other two were like small roles. So like, I mean, I guess it's, you know, uh, union rate or whatever. He's not paying these people a lot of money. It's just if you're on set for a couple days or whatever. I don't know. Is there trivia about Julia Roberts license plate? I couldn't figure out what it was trying to say, but it's a vanity plate of some kind. So. What is it? Do you, did you write it down? course i didn't write it down I'm not... <laughs> oh mike I killing know, me i know sorry about that so speaking of julie roberts my favorite part in this movie might be my favorite thing in any movie ever because it's so over the top i would imagine this is something that michael you love specifically knowing america's sweetheart we have america's dad and america's sweetheart here the joy in which she changes the a to an a plus I was like, why is she acting so extremely as she's got her glass of wine and Excel open and changing an A to an A plus? Like, it's like a 40 second scene. I was like, why is this this long? And doesn't she then like confirm it to him verbally, like at the diner or whatever? She's like, by the way, gave you an A plus. I wonder if that's the moment she falls in love with him. <laughs> he earned an A-plus in my heart. The greatest irony of all is that she's teaching her class to care, and in the end, it is she who learns to care. It feels like there were other moments. I wonder if that was like a Hanks thing, because I feel like there are other moments in the movie where we'll get a character sort of have like a thought to themselves on screen. Um, like I know it for sure happens a lot with like the uh, Wilbur Volderama character, where he's just kind of like, you know, they cut to him, and he's definitely thinking, to himself something like this is getting out of control like why does my girlfriend like have this infatuation with this old man and all this stuff I got the sense that the movie was doing that like more than once well this is a world and this is a movie in which everyone kind of loves everyone but also not really like everyone is in love with Guga and Batha Ra with Talia everyone is kind of in love with Tom Hanks everyone is like pleasant like I was saying to Michael when I was confirming this with him about like joining us tonight was like the only people who are mean in this movie are the people at the beginning who like fire and make fun of Tom Hanks for getting fired and they get their comeuppance almost immediately like Rob Riggle also loses his job and becomes a pizza boy like halfway through the movie like everyone who is mean even a little bit in this movie is like oh no they get their just desserts or whatever anything that could go wrong is immediately righted and then the people who made it go wrong get punished and I don't know that we've ever seen a movie with like this level of commitment to justice it is something to behold yeah it must be nice being Tom Hanks you know I imagine this is just how he sees the world. And it's nice the way he sees it. Like, you know, it would be nice if there were things that actually balanced out like that, but not really. It does feel like only he could have made this movie. Well, that's the thing why it feels like such a fantasy world to me now, too, especially, you know, not to 
get too serious or anything, but just like with everything going on in the world, and then in this movie you see, you know, Brian Cranston get pulled over for drunk driving, and and he's at home the next day. Like I'm just saying, like, you know, only to Brian Cranston in a movie would that really happen to somebody. But like there are just, you know, people lose their job, and there was a like a whole downsizing crisis, and like. Not everybody could afford to, like, go to community college and, you know, foreclose on their house and do what Larry Crown is doing. But the movie makes it seem like this were these were the motions that everyone went through when this happened to them. Uh, but this is just, like, a very privileged account of this going on. So this is apparently based on the life of a friend of Tom Hanks named Jim Chandler. This apparently happened to him. He must have lost his job, lost his house, went to community college, fell in love. Who knows how extreme this was? But this was inspired by someone he knew. The greatest trivia, there's actually two bits of trivia I want to say now. Number one is that when Brian Cranston found out that he got the part that he was playing Julia Roberts' husband, he immediately started working out and dieting and bleached his teeth to make sure that he would look the part of a man who would be married to Julia Roberts. And I really, truly do appreciate his commitment to the craft that like, oh, I'm in the middle of Breaking Bad where I'm dying of cancer. Let me make sure that I look like I would at least be able to be passable for a guy who might have the luck or the grace or the something to have married Julia Roberts, to have wooed her at one point in my life. So I really appreciate that. Still seems unlikely, but... <laughs> right. I figured he pulled some kind of celebrity move early on to, to sort of dis- like sweep her off her feet and then you know she slowly uh got them back on the ground <laughs> by the end of the relationship the other bit of trivia that i want to read right now is that this is another a verbatim like there's every once in a while there is someone who submits trivia to imdb that writes something in a particular way that just makes me laugh and this is verbatim the trivia about this one piece Tom Hanks performed a few tasks on this movie. He was the lead actor, co-writer, producer, and director. Full stop. (laughs) He performed a few tasks. That's not trivia. That's just like, you can look in the credits. Like, you know that. Yeah. At what point does it just become a fact? And at what point is it trivia? Like, there's nothing trivial. (laughs) All right. Now, on the flip side of this, I don't know if I have one because I don't know. I don't have strong feelings about this movie one way or the other, aside from that Julia, Julia's scenes, I guess. But like, do either of you have a least favorite part? Is there something about this that doesn't work? Michael, is there something, if you had to pick a least favorite part of Larry Crown, what would it be? Yeah, I think it's more like a meta level where it just feels like they underused Taraji P. Henson, who at this point was like relatively fresh off an Oscar nomination for The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. And then she's just kind of like here to be a third tier supporting character's wife. And I'm like, uh, Taraji deserved better than this. Wait, did she and Cedric the Entertainer have a garage sale in perpetual motion? Just like always? Yes. He wins the lottery or becomes independently wealthy. He gets a windfall of money. He was on a game show. He spun a big wheel and won half a million dollars. And so that allows them to then sell all their things and that's their job. I I don't understand anything I think it's sort of like I wondered if it was sort of like a swap meet sort of kind of thing because I know there's a lot of that goes on like just everywhere in general I mean you could just go down to the Meadowlands during the summer well not right now but like in the past like I remember when I worked for this one record store like my boss would go there every morning and everything so it's almost as if he has like the swap meet just like but at his house where he's constantly got like new things coming in and out from wherever and like so it's like take a penny leave a penny but just with like random bullshit i guess because he's not really haggling like he trades the tv for the moped and it seems like you know there's not that much money being exchanged between him and other people so i don't know what exactly is happening 
I don't know. Mike, what about you? Is there something about this that you didn't like, your least favorite part of Larry Crown? I mean, maybe just the whole general nothing terrible ever happens in this movie. Like, there's just something, like, there's never really a moment where it's like, oh, man, I think Larry's gonna, like, not die or anything like that or kill himself. Don't get me, I don't want to get that dark. But, you know, it's not like he's ever failing his class or anything like that. It's tough. I don't really have, like, a full-on moment. I wish there was a lot more Pam Greer in this movie. Like, I think the scene she's in like her and Julia Roberts have great chemistry and the few moments they share together I love when her and Julia Roberts walk into the diner at the end and and the owner is like how do you say my ex-wife just walked into the front door or something like that or my new ex-wife I don't know I thought that was a funny line in regards to like oh okay I know one I got it I got it I really felt the movie could have just ended before the whole new semester right so like there's this really sort of nice moments at the end of the semester where everyone gets their grades and you know you're like okay Larry and Julia Roberts are just gonna like get together now but then it's like next semester and there's a couple extra scenes and it's like where's Larry what's going on is he and Julia Roberts already together and I'm like thinking to myself what the hell was he waiting for all summer what did they do all summer like not hang out not get together that kind of drove me a little crazy at the end there thinking about so maybe if they just sort of summed it all up at the end of the semester instead of starting a whole new one to end the movie then it could have felt a little smoother but but again there's like nothing really sticks out it's you know nothing's really that bad i feel like this is the closest thing that i've had to what we've talked about we talked about an american made mike where it was like I want to see a movie where there's no conflict and everything just turns out right. And then now that I have it, I'm like, oh, I don't. This is why it doesn't happen because it's weird. Like it, it's weird that this happened. Yeah, that's it. There just is such a lack of conflict. Like he never has to get into a fight with Brian Cranston, which I thought for sure, you know, like something would happen there. At least shove you like, what do you got moves on my wife, pal? And like all this stuff and none of that. I have two least favorite parts, one small thing and one bigger thing. The small thing is that when he is approached by the dean or whoever that guy is who keeps sitting in on the class, who just seems to be like just maybe the head of the community college, he's like, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to take speech. You're going to take econ. You're going to take writing. You're going to learn how to talk. You're going to learn how to run a business. You're going to learn how to write. And then he's like, cool, got it. And then we never see the writing class whatsoever. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We see, you know, a bunch of the Julia Roberts class. We see a bunch of the George Takai class. And then not a single word is said about the writing class. It's like, did he drop it? Like, what, what happened there? Yeah, they don't pick that thread up ever. <laughs> Do you think they had that in a script, but were just like issues? Or... No, I think they were just like, no one will <laughs> think about it. It's fine. I realized about like halfway through, like, say that happens, you know, 20 minutes in, 25 minutes in, whatever, probably the break into two. Like half an hour after that, I was like, wait a minute. Where did that third part go? And then, nope, never. The bigger issue that I had, and I think this is only, I, I noticed it because it's similar in a way to Charlie Wilson's War, that when I talked about maybe my favorite part, I don't remember if it was, if it wound up being my favorite part, Mike, but when we talked about that movie with Tobin, I talked about how amazing I thought it was the way they introduced Julia Roberts' character. That, like, we hear about her, we hear her voice, and then we see that gigantic oil painting of her, and then only after we've had this all built up, then do we finally see Julia Roberts as, like, this Texas bigwig, billionaire, whatever. And, like, we've, we know so much, we've seen so much before we see her that she feels even more than just, like, her movie star personality, like, she feels bigger than the character because, like, we know so much about her. Compare that to this movie, where the dean is like, oh, you're really gonna like the teacher, wink, wink, she's hot, and then they show her, like, with the heels coming out of the car, and I'm just like, it feels 
objectifying in a way that kind of sets it back a bit. I get that it's kind of a cool way, sort of, maybe to introduce her. Like, to again, that we're learning about her before we see her, that she's this, like, sort of this myth at the community college. But I felt like it was a little bit degrading and a little bit demeaning and a little bit kind of off-putting how, like, she was just, like, she's not a person. She's just, like, a sex symbol. And I feel like she quickly overtakes that just because she's Julia Roberts, but, like, it felt weird to me, and I don't know if either of you felt that way, too. Yeah, I think that the way that they introduced her, like you're saying, like, when you see her, like, kind of putting on the heels, it was like you're almost watching, like, a Quentin Tarantino movie, you're like, oh, no, the feet. I think, like you're saying, like, I think she overcomes it in terms of, like, building the character out, but the movie is definitely, like, there is 100% a male gaze on her character. Yeah, I think it even tries to sort of, no pun intended, course correct that a little bit later, where some other student says like you were recommended to me like someone said that you're like a great teacher or something like that so maybe the movie was like whoa like we can't really go back and reshoot that scene where he sort of like pimps the class out to Hanks based on the teacher Uh, so like maybe we could like correct some of that stuff like later on in the movie but it's still very strange that that guy like then like sits in on that class a lot like not just once but like two or three times I feel like he like gives Larry the thumbs up like is that guy a ghost was he even real like what (laughs) (laughs) Maybe he was the writing professor and he died and that's why he never had the writing course because the professor died and whew. Maybe we solved it. And he could have been the English teacher and that, or the writing teacher, and that would have right? solved so much. <laughs> I do feel like, though, that this is the cinematic and screenplay equivalent of, like, Rate My Professor and the Chili Pepper icon, which I think they've gotten rid of. It's just like, oh, I want teachers that have the hot pepper. Oh, cool, Julia Roberts has it. Definitely taking her class. I think they have gotten rid of that. <laughs> I think they did. I think they realized, like, oh, this is maybe not good. Yeah, that's insane that that was even a thing. For a long time! For a long time. A couple other things I liked about this movie or I noticed about this movie, I like Brian Cranston's meticulous foldered erotica on his computer. Like, he's got all the different folders, and each there's like, oh, so here's some vintage stuff. Oh, here's some, like, what does he say later? The quote he says, Emmy Award-winning actor, Brian Cranston, what's really pissing you off is that I like big knockers and you don't have any, he says to Julia Roberts before she storms out of the car, which, whew. What a line. What a line. He ripped off another insult as he peels out in the car, too. Something about, like, being a washboard or something. I'm like, what is going on here? What is this character development? (laughs) I saw Michael's tweet the other day about the greatest scene in film history and just watching Julia Roberts in Ocean's 12, which we talked about in Cinemakers, as Tess, as Julia Roberts, is the greatest. Like, how dare you make fun of the way she looks? Also, when, like, when you're Brian Cranston in the Brian Cranston-Julia Roberts dynamic, like, tough. Yeah, right? Why did Tom Hanks pronounce the word spectacular? He says it a lot. I bet that's just, like, something Hanks does around the house all the time, and he just had to, like, sneak it into his... I swear there's lots of things like that in here where I... Not lots, but there's a few times with things like that where I'm like, there's either, like, a look or a thing he's doing where I feel like he does this at home all the time. And even if he doesn't, there's just the vibe I was getting off of Larry Crown, where I was just like, this kind of feels just like the way I bet Hanks is off screen a lot. Just, like, real affable and kind of, like, chatty and, hey, what are we doing today? Okay, let's just go do that. I know a place to eat. Follow me. Yeah. Again, this is something we've noticed recently. I think, again, going back to Charlie Wilson's War, we have no Hank's butt in this movie, but we have prolonged Hank's butt in Tidy Whitey's. Now he's in middle age, he's in this midlife, and he's just like, I'm going to show my butt a lot on screen. Good for him. 
I don't think since uh, Forrest Gump we saw him in his tighty whities I can't be sure, though. We also have Julia Roberts later working out while wearing jeans, which I thought was a very interesting choice. This movie's amazing. Like, there's been some talk on this podcast of some Larry Crown slander, and I'm just here to say, like, it's a 5 out of 5 movie. Like, <laughs> 5 stars all around. <laughs> I've definitely worked out in, like, casual, non-workout attire from time to time, for sure. But in jeans... Not jeans. No, I'm not crazy. The only other thing that I want to say is we have a uh, shout out to the foodie films man himself, Kyle Ryan. We have a famous food scene where Hanks is a short order cook. And this apparently Tom Hanks' father uh, was a cook when he was, I guess his job was a cook. Tom Hanks plays a short order cook. In his real life, his father, Amos Medford Hanks, was a cook. So. Wait a minute. Amos Medford? That is a name. And the only other bit of trivia that I have is that nearly 75% of the movie's audience on opening weekend was older than 50, which makes absolute (laughs) sense. You reap what you sow. That's my favorite trivia, I think, for anything we've ever done on this network ever. Right? incredible. Michael, any other notes about Larry Crown before we play a couple games? I recommend this movie to literally everyone in any life circumstance. It is an incredible, breezy 99 minutes of just pure bliss and things not going wrong, or if they go wrong, they're immediately corrected, and you know what? Like, I think people are saying, like, oh, what would a movie be like without conflict? And then you actually get it, and it's like, oh, this is why they don't do that. But for this one shining moment, it worked. <laughs> very, very true. And Mike, what about you? Any other thoughts about Larry Crown, a.k.a. Lance Corona, which they just call him, the Scooter Gang calls him that? Yeah, well, it's like a play on Larry Crown, right? Is it? I mean, Corona is Spanish for crown, I think, right? I noticed there's a lot of crowns in the sort of art direction in the background of this movie, too, and everything. But I guess, in summary, I learned a lot about potatoes. I learned a lot about interior design. I learned a lot about geography show. I mean, George Bernard Shaw. You know, yeah, this is probably top five easy breezy lightest movies ever seen in my entire life that I've ever seen. So yeah, you really, I don't know, you you can't get angry at this movie. It won't let you. So yeah, it's totally fine. Check it out. It's a movie starring Tom Hanks and Julia Roberts. When this movie like eventually makes it into the Criterion Collection, I swear I will be writing that like intro essay to be like, Larry Crown, the most important movie of 2011. Ridiculous. The the weirdest movie, maybe the weirdest movie of 2011. I don't know. Or not. I don't know. Maybe it's the most normal movie of 2011. I don't know. I don't know how, I don't have words for this movie. Well, it's like, Joe, you know what? It, it, it occurred to me not while I was watching it for some reason but afterwards that uh, this is like this is a romantic comedy it just never really gets off the, it doesn't get off the ground early enough you know like by the end it's a room it reveals itself to be like a romantic comedy or like about to be a romantic comedy or something I don't know I felt like it could have been more conventional in a lot of ways and really bumped itself up a whole level if it if it went that route but instead it didn't it you know, it kept them single for most of the movie. Yeah. Even though it seems like every woman was, to some extent, in love with him. Yeah. Pick of the litter. Larry Crown. This is the last thing that he has directed. There are a bunch of episodes, TV episodes, including, of course, Fallen Angels, an episode of that, which we talked about. We, t- we talked about that already. I, you might have blocked it out just PTSD-wise, but he directed an episode in the first four, along with Tom Cruise and Steven Soderbergh, so we'll get to that. He directed an episode of Tales from the Crypt, A League of Their Own, the TV series, a segment on Vault of Horror, number one, an episode of From the Earth to the Moon, and an episode of Band of Brothers. But this is the last thing, so not since 2011 has he directed anything. Uh, he did write Greyhound, which is going to come out this year. That's coming out, I think, on Apple TV Plus this summer, so he wrote that, but he has not directed anything since, since Larry Crown. I don't know if he lost the bug? I don't know. I mean, when you make a perfect movie, I think you go out on top. (laughs) 
Exactly. Cool. Okay. Very important question. Could Tom Cruise, the other half of this Tom Tom Club, could Tom Cruise play the role of Larry Crown? Or if not, what role could he play in this movie? I mean, I would say no in terms of could he play Larry Crown? I think that Larry Crown requires, again, like going back to what I was saying earlier, that kind of like benignness. And I don't think Tom Cruise exudes that kind of energy. I think he has much more of a wilder energy. But who could he play? He could play the Dean, I would imagine. Or even, like, the George Takai part. I'd be interested to see him as a kind of self-obsessed professor. I'd like to see him as Hanks' neighbor, actually. I wonder how that dynamic would be like. Just, um, you know, a burger and a beer. Come on over. Say hi. Like, pet the dog. Buy something from my wife's eternal store in her garage. Yeah, come over. Buy something. Hang out for a while. Yeah, it'd be more of, like, a subdued role. I mean, that's the thing about this movie is, like, I feel like his energy would not be contained in this movie. Like, it would just blow a a wall down and he'd go flying off screen somewhere. So I guess the answer is probably just no, right? Not him, maybe not anywhere. Now, important question. I think the answer is yes, but I don't know for sure. Michael, for a long time in this podcast, we were asking, does Tom Hanks do anything in this movie that sets him on the road to becoming America's dad? Like, basically, is he doing enough dad-like stuff, noble, upstanding stuff, to set him on the path to becoming America's dad? A handful of movies ago, a while ago, we're like enough asking this question. He is America's dad. We've established that already. Now we're asking, is he still America's dad in this movie, or does he do things in the movie to kind of take him off that track? As writer, as director, as producer, as actor, having quite a few tasks, or whatever that IMDb trivia said, does he still fulfill his role as America's dad in Larry Crown? Yeah, for sure. There's, like, no real edge to to Larry Crown. Like, the only people he screws over, like, quote-unquote, like the bank and I think that in 2011 that was a pretty popular thing to be doing if not still in 2020 treats everyone very respectfully he's a stand-up guy he's a navy veteran and he's just trying to get his education you know live his best life and you know have an age-appropriate romance with Julia Roberts and I think that we can all get behind that for sure I agree Mike, do you have any dissuading thoughts, or you agree? You in agreement with us? Yeah, no, I, I was just surprised his character did not have a kid in this movie at some <laughs> point. Like, you know, heaven forbid we get that come up. And <laughs> like, if you told me in this movie that Larry Crown was a virgin, I'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> you know, this is crazy, but like three or four times, I'm looking at Larry Crown, I'm like, I see Forrest Gump in this performance so much, I don't know why, but like... Well, because I think it's the same kind of thing where it's like, you can just impart whatever you want to impart on it, right? Like, Forrest Gump is a reflection of America, anybody can see yourself in that role, kind of, maybe? And maybe that's why we had such a difficult time, like, parsing out whether we liked it or not, but like here, it's just like, oh yeah, that's just, that's just a guy. That's just America, you know, post-Great Recession, trying to make do in a below where he should be career-wise, in over his head in debt with the mortgage, not in a relationship. Like just, okay, yeah. The final thing you have to do is the Woody's, the Tom Hanks Awards, the Best and the Worst of Tom Hanks Filmography, Best Film, Worst Film, or Best of the Worst, Most Fun, Bad Film. I don't think this is any of those. I think this is, again, firmly down the middle. You know, after talking about it this much that I never thought I'd even watch this movie twice in my life but like as fine as it is it's really weird how like there's just these small little places where this movie could have been like kind of great like you know I know Michael thinks it's great great as it is you know and I don't want to take that away from him or anything but like there's moments there's just very small things that could have been done to really elevate this movie to a to a degree of like holy shit like I really love this movie you know since that's not gonna happen I, I like it it's fine it's like yeah. just totally like unoffensive 
Like, it's yeah. so weird. You almost want to see a version of this movie directed by, like, the Coen brothers or something. And, like, see what they could do with this character. That feels like maybe, like, a serious man. Best Hank's role, worst Hank's role, most wasted Hank's performance. No? Again? Best Ensemble. Now, this is interesting. It's close, but to, to your points, like, to both of you, what you said, Pam Greer's not used enough, Taraji B. Henson's not really used enough, Rami Malek is, like, the same one note. Like, the potential is there, and yet it's not. But who was Rami Malek? He's Mr. Robot. This was, But this was probably before that, wasn't it? Oh, this yeah, was, for sure. Yeah, so this is probably his first role or so. It's amazing how Hanks has sort of an eye for putting, you know, future stars in his movie. He did it with Charlize. He did it here with uh, Malik and stuff. Because this is even two years before Short Term 12, right? So, like, this is before Rami Malik was in that, so. I don't even think The Master was out yet, right? So, like, no one really knew what this guy was capable of yet. I don't feel like he's necessarily wasted, per se, but, yeah, there's just, the supporting roles aren't really there on screen enough to build anything up you know like Cedric the Entertainer is great but like you only get to see him at home like he doesn't you know what I'm saying like I think I feel like it's more of an ensemble if you get him out of a little more out of their own element and mix him up into the rest of the film a bit more I'd honestly rather have Rami Malek have an Oscar for Larry Crown than for Bohemian Rhapsody though like hot take like much prefer him in this to Bohemian Rhapsody so he's only acted in 33 things. His first thing was a episode of Gilmore Girls in 2004. He did some uncredited voice work in Halo 2. Bunch more TV work. He was in Night of the Museum. He was in the Pacific for six episodes. Then he was in Larry Crown. So it's still relatively early. He was in The Master, apparently. He was in Ain't Them Body Saints, Twilight Breaking Dawn, Part 1. He's in Twilight? Short Term 12, Old Boy, Need for Speed. Like, he's done a lot of really good th- I don't know, man. Okay, so I think no to Ensemble. Best fight. This movie is the farthest thing from a fight across the board in every regard. So no best dance scene. Does Hank's dance? No, right? I'm shocked there was no dancing in this movie. Best party scene? No. Best Hank's outfit wardrobe? Okay, I don't know if you noticed, but it seems that by the end of this, he's shopping exclusively at the Gap. I, I don't know. There's just a scene where he like walks out of his house and he's like right off the catalog page. It's just so weird to see like Larry before he met his new friends and Larry at the end of the movie. It's certainly a transformation. I can tell you that much. Best death, he does not die. Best line or best freakout. Oh, I had a great line. They're inducting him into the moped gang, and I guess they go say something patriotic, and he says, we'll be back right after these messages. Yep. <laughs> so you want you want to nominate that? I would like to, yeah. Okay, we'll be right back after these messages. Okay, okay. That was one of those Hanks at home moments I felt, too, where I bet like that was a joke that Colin and Chad have heard like a million times. <laughs> Best soundtrack theme score? No. Best or worst Hanks love story? Is it even enough to qualify? I guess it is. It's as much of a love story as like Sleepless in Seattle or like You've Got Mail is, right? Because those are like those great rom-coms and they're like not even really in a relationship for most of it. It's so weird because it's as if they're not even interested in each other, but like forces draw them together and they can't even, you know, like that's how it felt to me. Like they're just, yeah, if it happens, sure, that's cool. If it doesn't, whatever. Um, But it ends up like going on. So it's very hard to sort of figure out for me, like how this falls as a love story. So So yes or no? I, I, I leave it to you. Michael, knowing Tom Hanks roughly, knowing his filmography, knowing his love stories with, you know, Meg Ryan. Best Hanks love story right now. We have Hanks and Beasley the dog and Turner and Hooch, which sure, fine, whatever. Him and Howie Long and that thing you do, which is 
not in the theatrical cut. It's only in the director's cut. We got him and Rita Wilson in Volunteers, which is there. We got him and Meg Ryan in Joe vs. the Volcano, and him and Shelley Long in The Money Pit. So we really have, like, three love stories. Do we say him and Julia Roberts? I feel like we might have to. It's a romance, more or less. It's like all the PG parts of a romance. I'd go for it. All right, so I'll say yes. I'll say yes. Tom Hanks and Julia Roberts. It's definitely, like, the only movie you could really make about, like, a teacher falling in love with their student and it being copacetic, right? Like, this, like, they have to be a middle-aged college guy or something like this. You couldn't redo this Larry Crown's a high school kid or anything like that, so. What was that? Is it a novel called Tampa? That, yeah, Tampa by Alyssa Nutting. Yeah, man, oh, man. So Tampa was this book that Harmony Corinne was going to adapt, and... Tampa is about this like 23 year old the way that she's described in this book is like the most beautiful hottest babe of a woman you've ever seen and she has a sexual relationship with a 7th grader in this book and it is insane and Harmony Corinne was going to adapt it and then I think it just went away but I read this book for that reason I was like whoa it is basically as far from Larry Crown as you could possibly imagine so Mike when you're saying this is the only way you could tell a story of like a teacher falling in love with their student where it's fine even though they don't have the relationship until they don't really have the relationship until you know she's no longer his professor yeah for the most part like it's the most benign peaceful this is okay as opposed to tampa where like there's like graphic sexual depictions of her in a seventh grader it's like (laughs) whoa okay or or even even you know that's my boy with adam sandler i don't know if you're aware of that film but but like the whole concept is like when he was in high school he had sex with his teacher and she got pregnant and and actually had the kid and he raised him so it's like a kid raised, and then they pick it up like 15 or whatever years later and he's like hanging out with his son and stuff and Susan Sarandon plays the grown-up version of the teacher Um, but uh, yeah you know pretty risque stuff and then the final category best non-hanks actor male or female we already had Julia Roberts in Charlie Wilson's War so we can add Larry Crown here is there anyone else specifically of note I don't think anybody else has a big enough part like there's some nice supporting parts like I think Google and Batha Ra is good but like not not enough to be nominated I don't think yeah it's mostly a two-hander Well, surprisingly, somehow, three nominees, Best Line, Best Love Story, and then adding on to Best Non-Hanks Actor, Female. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. I was pleased to wake up this morning to see a new episode of Not Her Again in my podcast feed. Can you please tell our listeners about your podcast and anywhere else that you would like to be found online? So, um, kind of as you alluded to before, we're on season three. The first season, we looked at the years Meryl Streep lost an Oscar. The second season, we looked at Julia Roberts. That's why I'm a huge, you know, Larry crown high rise up kind of person and then (laughs) season three we're looking at Catherine Hepburn and doing like her Oscar nomination so each episode kind of focuses on uh you know what she was nominated for and oftentimes what she lost you know too so it's kind of the season that we're on where I think like halfway through now I think that was maybe episode five or six and she has 12 so yeah we are doing that you can find that kind of wherever you get podcasts and you can find me on twitter at mj domanico sadly no longer keep blanchett four t's five if you count the first t i know r.i.p <laughs> i do want to say if i go back on twitter speaking of twitter speaking of the bird app if i go back to 2011 or early 2012 i guess and like this this february or january whenever it was and we had the oscars and the bong hive was rising up and every time parasite won something they were celebrating if i go back to early 2012 will we have the larry crown hive or just you on twitter shouting into the void please why is she not nominated for best actress why is tom hanks not nominated for best actor why is he not nominated for best original screenplay why is he not nominated for best director yeah this wasn't nominated no not no <laughs> not for anything even remotely resembling an academy award yeah i think like maybe in 10 years they'll get one of those like retrospective like aarp things when they're like best a movie from the last <laughs> decade and it'll be 
there, there are the AARP awards, which are sometimes pretty good. This didn't even have one of those. It was nominated for three awards. At the BET Awards, Taraji P. Henson was nominated for Best Actress, I think specifically for Person of Interest, but also maybe she got nominated and she, this was thrown in because it's listed on Larry Crown. At the Black Reel Awards, R-E-E-L, Gugu Mbatha-Raw was nominated for Best Breakthrough Performance. And at the Golden Trailer Awards, Universal Pictures, not Larry Crown, but Universal Pictures, was nominated for the Golden Fleece at the Golden Trailer Awards. Wow, so, good for them. They've wanted that for a long time. I think so. So yeah, so nothing, you know, not Tom Hanks at all, but Taraji, Gugu, and then the studio, the movie studio, Universal Pictures. Who boy, what a day. Next week, Mike, next episode, you and I have Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, a movie that Tom Hanks might only be in a little bit. I don't know. Okay, is this going to be another Buck Howard situation here? I don't know, but it's the 9-11 movie, so I'm not looking forward. I'm very worried about this. I know, I've heard of it, being called the 9-11 movie but i don't know what that means about it like i don't know why it's that so at least i'm gonna get that mystery solved i want to say i think it's a told from the perspective of a kid whose father dies on 9-11 but i don't know that might be wildly wrong sounds like one of the movies they made when at an appropriate time after the catastrophe yeah 10 years later it's basically i'm imagining the king of staten island but 10 years ago oof then I'm not looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> also right now, I do want to say that you can vote for the Cruise Club Awards, the Cruisies. If you want to go to cageclub.me bracket, vote on the best and worst of Tom Cruise's filmography. Also, while you're there, I think voting should still be open for the High School Slumber Party, our sophomore yearbook superlatives, as well as, Michael, your favorite franchise, the Fast and the Furious. We have the Fast and Furious Hall of Fame. Go to cageclub.me bracket and vote on all three things of those. We have today either the Tom Cruise Clip Show or the Tom Cruise Ranked. I don't know why one of those is today, so check out our sort of fun, after-the-fact Tom Cruise episodes. And then a couple of weeks, come back for the Tom Cruise Awards, the Cruises themselves, as we officially unveil our winners. Which, Mike, I've seen you have not voted on any three of these things yet, as far as I know. So you got to get your got to get your ass in gear. No, I voted on the superlatives. I gotta I gotta do the others too, though. Okay. Well, I don't get emails about the superlatives. Okay. So you, okay, one of three. But the two things that I'm stop keeping tabs in. on me, Big Brother. What are you doing over there? <laughs> hey, man. Just like Minority Report, I'm reporting you for future crime. <laughs> but yeah, next week, extremely loud and incredibly close. Go to cageclub.me for all things Hanks the Memories, all 44 episodes and all 40 whatever, 44 episodes or five, I don't know, of Tom Cruise of Cruise Club. Email us, hanks at cageclub.me. Go to facebook.com slash cageclub or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Come back next week as we figure out what extremely loud and incredibly close is. And check out Michael's podcast, Not Her Again, and especially, especially the bonus episode he did last summer where I joined him to talk about Julia Roberts, which we did not talk about this movie, but we talked about other Julia Roberts things. A lot of fun. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that was Michael DeManico of the Not Her Again podcast. And we'll see you next time right here on Hanks for the Memories. We'll be right back after these messages.